Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon is recognised as one of the most brilliant sparkling winemakers in the world. Chef de cave at Champagne Louis Roderin since 1999, he's the man behind the deluxe cuvee Cristal, as well as a host of other bubblies. Our fascinating chat covered everything from freshness to what he calls deep-rootedness, autolysis to climate change, Champagne's famously chalky soils, to the role of Pinot Meunier in blends. Hi Jean-Baptiste, how are you? How are you, Tim? I'm good. I'm good, and you? I'm really well. Um, lovely to hear your voice. Um, you're in Rounds, presumably, are you? Yes, I am. I am. We just finished Vintage last week, so it's uh, it's uh, first week uh, since Vintage has finished. So it's it's good to relax a bit and, and uh, get some fresh air back, you know, after four weeks <laughs> of full speed, full energy in Champagne. And, and how, the Vintage was early this year, was it? Presumably it seems to be early everywhere in Europe. Yeah, we, we started quite early. We thought it would be much earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, we got, um, um, we started only August 29th. So we expected it to be earlier than that. But we had a slow mm. process of ripening, which which I liked because it's, it gives us time and, and a better ripeness. So, But it's still early for Champagne, being a harvest on August 29th and finishing around... August fifteenth, sixteenth. It's quite. It's, it's well, September fifteenth. Yeah. Yes, Finishing sorry. September fifteenth. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, unless you were going backwards in time. Exactly, but I can do it. You know, <laughs> I can do. It. I know you can do most things. I can believe you. You're such a magician. <laughs> this is the magic of wine. <laughs> Listen, it's appropriate that, that you're sitting in Reims because that was where you were born. You're very much a, a Champenois. I just were your family in wine? Were your were your family's winemakers or growers? Not at all, not at all. My family were beer makers. You know, I'm from uh, three generation beer making family, and uh, in the region of Reims. So it's uh, it's I, my family is from here. And um, and then I got I got the idea when I was young, you know, I got really um, uh, kind of uh, uh, discovery of wine and especially Burgundy uh, when I was uh, when I was fifteen, sixteen, which really made me um, make my career into wine because I really loved this um, this association of story of uh, the link to the territories that you can have with uh, mm. with wine and also the perfumes of wine and uh, so this is this is a magic product and I, I when I was fourteen I told myself you must work in this in this field and that's why <laughs> what not beer yeah. not beer but wine yeah <laughs> yeah in wine and. Uh, and uh, I, my first idea was not necessarily champagne, by the way. Uh, I wanted maybe more to make um, to make uh, steel wine and burgundy. Uh, but um, yeah, it happened to be champagne, and I'm lucky to be 
in a very beautiful house, so this is fine. <laughs> Champagne house, you mean? I'm sure your house is beautiful as well. But, so, I mean, you know, you went to the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Montpellier, which is a very famous place to study uh, agriculture and enology. And I mean, how did you get the job at Rodelais? I mean, you straight out of straight out of the Ecole Normale Sup, you know, you had a job. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I graduated first of my class, so it was in both viticulture and winemaking. And Jean-Claude Rousseau, the sixth generation um, president and owner of Louis Rodreur, of Champagne-Louis Rodreur, was also from Montpellier. He did study in Montpellier. So uh. he came to Montpellier and said to my uh, vineyard professor, not the wine professor, the vineyard guy, he asked for the best student. And I was the best student, so that was fantastic. And I started my... <laughs> My journey with Louis Rodreur since uh, 1989, uh, and it was, um, I didn't expect it to be such a long journey, but it's been a long journey so far. <laughs> <laughs> and you were chef de cave within 10 years, right? And you're now yes. vice president as well, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Within 10 years, I was appointed chef de cave, and I'm now yeah. vice president since 2006, and I supervise all the family uh, properties in the world. Uh, in Portugal, in California, in Bordeaux, in Provence, mm. and uh, so this is. A, I'm a very lucky uh, winemaker. That's a nice portfolio, but no Burgundy, right? Not yet. <laughs> Just waiting for <laughs> for the Burgundy. You know, life is always a cycle. You know, always come back to your first uh, time. You know, so I'm sure it's gonna happen. I still have ten years to go. So, I like your description. You talk about champagne be, being between the ocean, presumably the Atlantic Ocean, that brings water, uh, and, and, and the continent, the continent of Europe, uh, 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 that brings dryness and heat. Just give us a little overview of champagne. I mean, people will know about the Montagne de Reims and maybe the Vallée de la Marne and then, and then the Côte des Blancs. But just tell us a little bit about the, the things that affect champagne. Yes, I think champagne like Burgundy, we are exactly on the line, which is the limit of between continental influenced climate and oceanic influenced climate. So champagne is a bit more oceanic, while uh, Burgundy is more continental. But we are on this line that separates the two climates of France or one of the two main climates of France. Then you have the Provence and the Mediterranean climate. But we are, and I think this is a very much one of the secrets of Champagne to get, in fact, because of this unique position, we have always enough water, uh, rainfalls and storms coming from, from uh, the ocean. We have cool nights as well from the ocean. And in the summer, we can have some very, very, continental weather, which is dry and, and uh, high temperature for ripeness. So we have this magic of the two worlds, always enough water, but also some heat. And I think it's very important to be there on this line. And that's one of the main, for me, main uh, strengths of Champagne. Also, it is on chalk. And as you said, there are four main regions in Champagne. There is uh, the, Mont the Cuesta of Ile-de-France, which is uh, the Grand Cru locations, which is the north of Marne, where you're on pure chalk and you have the Montagne de Reims, 
where we grow Pinot Noir, north, northeast facing. Then you have the Côte des Blancs, which is pure chalk, east facing, uh, a bit more south. And on the middle of that, you have the uh, third region, which is the Marne Valley, with a river um, into going to Paris, and where you have the, uh, an area where you will have more Pinot Noir, Meunier, and Chardonnay. By the way, Côte des Blancs is a poor Chardonnay. Let's not forget the southern part of Champagne, which is close yeah. to Chablis. Uh, yeah. It's closer is, to uh, Chablis than it is to Reims, yeah? Exactly. So yeah, and yeah. they have the same kid meridian soil than, than Chablis. And uh, so this is Aube, where you have Barsecanet and also Bar-sur-Aubois, two regions, which are, which are Pinot Noir, mainly Pinot Noir uh, countries. So this is diversity of terroir. Um, and also this climate between continent and ocean that makes Champagne so special and soil, of course, and we'll talk about soil later, I think, when we speak about freshness, one of the main um, ingredients of freshness is definitely the soil, the specific soil mm -hmm. of Champagne. You've mentioned the three great varieties, so the two Pinots, you know, Meunier Noir and Chardonnay, obviously, which do different things in Champagne, don't they? I mean, is, is Pinot and Meunier regarded as a lesser grape sometimes but a lot of the top wines? I mean, Cristal, for example, I don't think you use Meunier in it, do you? But you would do yeah. in your, in your non-vintage blends. Yes, for a long time, the Grand Cru, the 17 Grand Cru, the best locations of Champagne, were only allowed to be planted in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were the king and the queen of Champagne. Um, and Meunier was the prince. It was uh, used more often as a blender, uh, but it's a very, very important grape varietal in Champagne because it's bud bright very late. So 10 days later than Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which is important for frost uh, episodes which are very very important in Champagne so they but break after the main frost episodes and then uh, they have a short cycle of ripeness which allows them to come at harvest at the same moment than Pinot Noir and Chardonnay so it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, and by the way linking the grape varietal to continental and oceanic weather Chardonnay is clearly an oceanic child, while Pinot Noir is more a continental child. Uh, in a dry, interesting. In a dry and uh, very heat, hot year, Pinot Noir will be fantastic. It will, it will, it will love, it loves this kind of weather. While Chardonnay prefers a little bit of rain, it needs water to, to, to get its finesse and its elegance. So it's more a child, a child of the ocean. And Pinot Noir is right in between. So I think we have this, and, and let's not forget, we have Arban, Petit Mélier, and also Pinot Gris, and uh, all those grape varietals that can also, the seven allowed grape varietals of Champagne that can play a role. And I think they will, pay, they will play in the coming years because of the climate crisis and climate change. They will, they, they will soon play, I think, I believe, a stronger role. How much of those grapes are planted? I mean, the three main grapes would be, what, 97%, 98%? 99, 99, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Less than yeah. 1%, but, but we are replanting yeah. some. 
We are replanting yeah. some petit mélier, some arban, some, uh, some mm. pinot gris, mm. uh, some pinot blanc. And I think this is going to be, uh, it's going to be important to get this diversity in the future, to, to get not only one solution, two solutions, because we have extreme climate conditions. So we need to have the full spectrum of biodiversity available for the winemaker. Interesting. I mean, you're unusual amongst the major champagne dancers that you own so many hectares, you know, 240 hectares. I think it's 415 parcels, you know, two thirds is what you need. And that's very unusual, isn't it, among champagne houses? I just wondered how much of an advantage that gives you, a competitive advantage. I mean, obviously, you can plant other things, but what other advantage does it give you? The main advantage of owning your, 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 your vineyards is first consistency. You always get the fruit from the same site. And you can really craft some site-specific wines thanks to this consistent ownership. You can decide where to buy them and because they have a specific taste, a specific expression that you like. You can really build a, a strong style and a consistent style thanks to the origin. I believe myself that it is the strongest um, consistency in our style and um, so you can you can forget the winemaking techniques you can let the site express itself and in the end express the rodeur flavors and the rodeur style uh, or typicity the singularity of every one of our wine so first uh, this the origin is really important second the crafting of a wine starts in the vineyard uh, the level of ripeness, the depth of the roots, the type of material, rootstocks, vines, all of that is really building, crafting the final product and the quality of the uh, raw material, the grapes, and the taste of your grapes. And I think it's, it's very important to control that because you can really, I always compare us, Chef de Cave, as the chef... Um, uh, in the gastronomy uh, field. Um, <laughs> often they cook very well. We cook very well uh, as a chef, as a winemaker, but the only, we have a big difference. We grow our own grapes as well. So mm. we can really mm. craft the fruit we want, decide when we pick it, when it tastes like we mm. want to mm. be picked and uh, we can make a choice of a style and what we want to achieve. And I think only by owning your land, and let's remember that in Champagne, 10% mm. of the land is owned by the, by the houses mm. and 90% mm. is owned by growers and houses buy fruit from them. So the mm. control on the, the, this fruit, the 90%, is difficult to, you can get it, by good discussions and good relationship with your grower, but it, it's, it's more difficult. And when you, you can do what you want with your fruit. And this is why at Roder, all our vintage wines are all 100% estate bottles. They all come from yeah. our own grapes, our own vineyards. Only our multi-vintage comes from our vineyards plus purchased grapes. Mm. Yeah, and you, you can decide also whether you want to be organic and or biodynamic, and, and, and you've been both, haven't you? Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I just just tell us about the two. Do you think the two systems are complementary? I mean, you're you're a, a very trained scientist. You know, you know a lot about vineyards as well as about winemaking. I just wonder, you know, are there bits of biodynamism that you think, oh, I don't quite understand that or not? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't understand all of biodynamism. <laughs> uh, as when you look at the book and when you read the books of Steiner and so on, this is so complicated. Mm. And I think this is a view that that uh, I don't want to look at this at this side of things. What I, what I retain in biodynamic, it is. I think the biodynamic movement is more uh, the, the number one strength of this movement is that it, uh, it is using craftsmanship, traditional craftsmanship as a key engine of uh, the vineyard management. So everything is seen as small size, small grower, traditional, what we, where we come from. It's deep-rooted mm. as a movement. Mm. And I think it's important in our wine business to be very deep-rooted. Only if you, when you are deep rooted, you can look at the future. I don't believe you can look at the future of wine without being deep rooted. So mm -hmm. uh, the biodynamic for us or the organic is, is a good way to come back to this traditional way of farming that um, engage people, empower all our team to make, to be part of the story and not just machine, chemistry, and so on, and uh, addition of industry, we have to stay, it's very important for me, in the making, you have to stay on the craftsman's side and not mm. on the industrial side. So I do yeah. all I can, and biodynamic is one of my tools, I do all I can to get my team on this side of craftsmanship and stay involved. It's a human story. What we are putting mm. in the bottle is a part of our life. It's not just our job. It's part of our life and, and soul. And I think uh, when you do biodynamic, when you do organic, you can easily get your people to think the same way. So that's for the, the way of looking at it. For the more agricultural or scientific way, I think, I think we had no choice 20 years ago to forget about chemicals and to stop the abuse of chemicals, of herbicides and so on, because it's not, it's not good for the planet, it's not good for the water tables, it's not good for our children. So we had to find a way that will be and relearn, because it's only relearning 50 years ago, back 50 years ago. Yeah. Huh? Champagne mm -hmm. was organic until 1960s. So it, mm. came, it became chemistry in the 60s. So we had to relearn to go back to step zero, what we were in 1960. So if it, and then uh, with the power of science of the 21st century. So we have to use all the smartness, the new tools, the new knowledge, the DNA analysis that we, do, we can control now, we can master. We, we use all of that, all the power of the 21st century, back to the 1960s for getting the, chemist, mm -hmm. the heavy chemistry time. If you, it will happen if in you, between, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's like climbing, climbing a, a mountain. Sometimes mm -hmm. you, you go in a mountain, you climb, and you find mm -hmm. you have taken the wrong 
path. It's a wrong yeah. road. So you have two yeah. choices. You have two choices on the mid slope. You decide to go back to the hill, back down the hill, and find the good one. Or you can you stay on the top and you fi- you fight to find a, a, so, a way to get to the top. But I think it's better sometimes to go back down to the valley, think about it, look it from another angle, and mm. then start mm. again. And that's and what go, we did. And go again. Exactly. That's yeah. what we did. And I call yeah. it innovating backward, you know, not forward. <laughs> that's what we did. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting now you it's, talk about DNA because you, yeah. you you once said that freshness is the DNA of champagne. I just wondered how that relates to the to the Rodin style. I mean, can you can you just tell us how you achieve this magical style in the bottle? Yes, yes. Of first, freshness is the DNA of champagne for mm. sure because I think that's what distinguishes champagne from any other wine. Uh, it's bubbles mm. for sure, but there is more than the bubbles. There is this salivating. Ah, you can describe it in many ways. This is salivation. This is um, drying in your mouth, uh, acidity sometimes. It can be also umami in a way. Mm-hmm. So all this association of, of softness with a dry acidity or salivating iodine style acidity, all that comes from our soil in Champagne and you, I, I, because of this calcium high chalk mm-hmm. content. And we have some wines which are very, which are very unusually high in calcium. So the calcium mm. content of the wine has a drying acid effect. And this is what I call freshness. This is not quite the acidity as we measure it, total acidity, pH, and so on. This mm. is for mm. me more the calcium effect. The, mm. uh, that is really, really drying and making, and in, in a way, you don't get the same effect in Burgundy. They have limestone, mm. not chalk. Mm. It's quite not, not the same the same effect. Mm. So this freshness, I think, when you are in a terroir, when your vines are planted in a place, on a site, and on a specific soil, I think our role is to take the best of this. And uh, so I think in the Rodor style, speaking about the Rodor style, in those very fresh uh, soils, we can make very elegant, yet concentrated and dense wines. And I think this would be my description of the Rodor style. It's a texture that would be dense with a lot of lightness, thanks to the salivating, the, the, mm. the lightness, the brightness of the, of the fruit and the flavors. So staying in this magical um, feeling of at the same time there is some power but it's effortless and it's delicious so this is I mean, where just listening to you makes yeah. I was going to say just listening to you makes me want to drink champagne <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to have a glass <laughs> yes. it is salivating by the way <laughs> yeah exactly I'm salivating the, I mean, the, the other thing I want to ask you about is 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 blending it's very interesting your approach to blending because you, you talk about it as as composition, as if it were, I don't know, a painting or, or, or a piece of music rather than assemblage, yeah? I, I just wonder how, how do you combine these different elements? And, and do, you, do you think about the house style when you're making it, or do you just think, I'm going to reflect the vintage or the vintages if you're making a multi-vintage wine? So it's both. It's both. It's at the same time, 
letting the vintage shine um, and make it an opportunity to express this characteristic of the year into a Rodrer universe. So mm. it's, it's really, first of all, trying to see every vintage as an opportunity to create something singular, something never seen before. Mm. And in that way, I'm against this idea of champagne being consistent in taste and so on. Yeah. This is not my, I, I, it's not very exciting to do always the same taste. What's exciting is to reconsider every year, every vintage, reconsider your, your winemaking to really take something, uh, something, sometimes it's a nuance, but something that is really typical of the vintage, something that you don't get every year, and something that I want to capture and put in the bottle, and that will be the signature of the vintage. In that, um, and then I stay with the Rodrer universe, the Rodrer universe of mm. this freshness, lightness, uh, length, uh, the, the finish always of Rodrer wines is long and going up and never down. You know, I don't build wines to give the full, large flavors and then go short. And uh, I, I do the opposite. I start quite narrow. And then my wines explode with time or with the tasting. So I try to make a wine, a champagne that will really build the flavors up and up and up with time and with uh, air exposure or in your glass. So it, it, it's a way, it's, a, it's, it's an idea, and maybe that will summarize Rodreur style very much. We make wine to age. We want the wine, the wine, the champagne we make to have a real aging capacity as well. They can be beautiful in five years, even more beautiful in 10 years, in 15 years. It depends on your taste. It depends on what you like. And that's another story. But the other ones are this. There is, there is a promise of mm. aging capacity in the other ones as well. Mm. I mean, tell us a little bit about Cristal. It's your most famous deluxe cuvee. I didn't realize that in its origins um, back in the 19th century, it was, it was often sweet, wasn't it? That, that, that Cristal was a, the, the wine that the Tsars liked in Russia was often sweet. Tell us a bit about it now. I mean, it, it's a very prestigious wine. It, you've said it always comes from your vineyards. Does it always come from the same vineyards? And just tell us a little bit about the blend and, and the style of that wine and what you're trying to achieve with it. Yes. When Louis Rodreur created Cristal in 1876, he had a vision of soil. Maybe this is the first time in the history of Champagne that where uh, a house speaks about soil, and mainly soil. And uh, I always think that this wine, Cristal, was maybe the first wine of soil specifically made with soil because Louis Rodreur selected to make Cristal the chalkiest, the purest white soils of Champagne. And those mm. very high chalk soil, very little topsoil, but uh, and the, the bedrock is quite close to the surface, those uh, soil have the have the, the ability to make very concentrated, not very powerful wines, but very concentrated and low-yielding grapes. 
and mm. everything is concentrated in the flavors and it's it's a question of more perfumes it's a question of more freshness it's a question of more of everything and i think louis rodor was very smart at this moment to create this wine so he selected the plots today we have 70 plots that are dedicated to crystal they're all grand cru because in champagne grand cru is chalk and, uh, yeah. on, and of some the of them shock. are the, some of them in the original plots, are they? They, they, exactly. they date back to the 1870s. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. obviously, you know, before phylloxera, but but exactly yeah. the the, fir the first yeah. plots purchased by Louis Rodin were plots in a, were purchased in 1841. So so it yeah. was pre-crystal uh, creation, and so 70 uh, of them are. Farm to be crystal, but only 45 are old enough to make crystal. That means that they are more than 20 years old. And we don't make, a, uh, we don't use a plot into the crystal blend until it's 20 years old, because only after 20 years old, the root system is deep into the bedrock of chalk. And you have the magic of soil shining at this moment. It's not anymore mm. Pinot Noir. It's not anymore Chardonnay. It tests mm. chalk and uh, mm. concentrated chalk. And this is all the idea of crystal. So in a bottle of crystal today, the, the, the youngest plot is, for, is 20 years old. The oldest is more than 70. And the average age of the vines is about 40, 45 years old. Okay. So, and, and crystal is this idea. So the 25 plots which are not used into the blend are young plots because in the life of a vine, you need to renew them. So you pull out the vines, you replace them with massal selection, by the way. And then for, for, for 20 years, they are nurtured and they're prepared to make crystal and they will always come back in the crystal blend after 20 years. We should mention that because you just mentioned massal selection and you have your own nursery, don't you? Again, I think you're the only champagne house. You don't use clones, you use yeah. massal selection. So to explain to people, that means that you basically take cuttings from, from successful vines, as it were, and you and you propagate them. That's true, isn't it? Yes, yes. We, we, we started the program 20 years ago, a bit more than 20 years ago. Um, we had some very old plots, pre-clonal plots of crystal, and we said, okay, now... We, they were massal selection from our own vineyards and they were in Champagne, those vines, for more than 150, 200, 300 years. So we said, okay, this is, a patri this is an asset we have here. They are Pinot Noir adapted to our soil and they have been making crystal for a century or more. So let's replant them and let's recreate uh, a nursery uh, a very scientific nursery. It's not just massal mm. taking cuttings from the old vines. It's really redeveloped, regenerated, tested with virus, planted in a very, very uh, strict and very, uh, I should say, uh, uh, scientific way uh, to really protect them and make the maximum of our biodiversity available to us. Mm. It's also one mm. of our answers to climate change. It's mm. to go into the Pinot Noir. We have more now than 150 different Pinot Noir, massal selection. And we can have around 10 days difference of ripeness 
between the earliest no. ripening and the latest ripening. And they're all Pinot Noir. So I think it's, it's one more time, the key word of this project is biodiversity. There is mm. biodiversity in the fields. There is biodiversity in the soil, organic, biodynamic, but there is also biodiversity in the massal selection. And all that biodiversity, if you use it in full power, should give you a strong resilience to extremes of weather, to the change of weather. And this is really the, 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 the direction uh, we have all taken at Louis Rodreur to yeah. make our, our story even stronger. Mm. Mm. It, it's that word again you use, deep-rooted, isn't it? I mean, literally, in the in the sense that your 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 vineyards have got a, a DNA and a history that's 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 related to the region. Tell us a bit more about climate change. I'm interested in in what else you're doing because you're obviously looking at it and and you've described it as a climate crisis. I know. I mean, I think you're right. Uh, what, what else can you do as as champagne winemakers? Will you will you make more still wine? Do you think in the future will you maybe move to north facing more north facing sites or sites with more clay or something like that? I don't know. I mean, you tell us what you're looking at. There are many, many directions uh, we are looking at, and we have a laboratory of climate change that we have created back in 2004, uh, and uh, where we make a wine, um, a specific champagne, our Brut Nature, which is zero dosage, and all that is done into this wine. We only make this wine on very hot, ripe years, like this year. Mm -hmm and like mm. 2020, 2015. So we select only the hot ripe years and we see how in these conditions we can make, maintain the freshness mm. of champagne, the purity mm. of champagne and see how far we can push the limit. And we are implementing in our vineyard, in this vineyard, which is organically farmed, biodynamically farmed and certified. In this vineyard, we do um, a field blend of different of the seven grey varietals. Now it's coming mm -hmm. into into uh, next step, but uh, we have we started with three, then four with Pinot Blanc. Now we have seven, so we are we are trying to do everything we can, including and this is why we had the stark connection on this project of Brut Nature. Uh, the sober, the necessary. This is Philippe Stark, we should say. We should say this Stark, is Philippe yeah. Stark, who's the architect and designer, yeah? Yes, yes. Sorry to and interrupt. He, yeah. He, yeah. He, he joined us on this project that we had started mm. on our own. And when we explained it, when we explained Philippe what we were doing, he said, I want to join you because I really believe there is a subject here. And we should add on the top of what you are doing another idea, which would be maybe the cement or the key idea. Uh, of the future, it, it is to be sober in every meal. Decrease mm. any winemaking techniques, do as little as possible, use as little energy as possible, make a field blend that makes things easier after, limited the use of energy, the use of anything, to, and the use of sugar in the end, zero dosage, mm. to really make... Mm. A wine of the 21st century in these conditions of climate change, it means maintaining the freshness, showing what champagne can become um, in these new conditions. And mm. uh, so we have our, and we call it our laboratory of, uh, of, of climate 
change because it's we are putting ourselves in full conditions to to see if we can maintain something. So this is for the champagne side. And you're yeah. right. We have developed also at the same time some Coteau Champenois. We have we have planted plots of Coteau Champenois, one white. Uh, now we have four reds, single vineyards. And uh, we have released in 2018 a white and a plot of red. This year in 2022, uh, uh, another plot of red will join the team. And uh, in the coming years, we have some other plots. So we are going to doing some single vineyards. We have to fine-tune our, relearn how to make a Coteau Champenois uh, in style, something uh, very specific and very um, uh, adapted, adapted to what mm -hmm. we do. It's not necessarily a copy of Burgundy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it has to be adapted to our soils, uh, our conditions, our aging, and everything we can do here in Champagne to, yeah, mm -hmm. to express our sites, which are completely different than Burgundy. So um, there are many, many ways. But to link all of that, I think what we are talking about is one thing. This is what we really believe at Roder is that the winemaking of the 21st century is to adapt your winemaking techniques to the fruit you harvest and not mm. the opposite. Not, mm. not, the, not the fruit you'd like to have. <laughs> exactly. Not, not like we did in the 70s or 80s. We want this type of fruit mm. with this acidity, this pH. So we pick at this moment and we transform our, with our winemaking techniques. I think it's, it's not relevant anymore. You need to let nature that do its job. Um, you can fine-tune in the vineyards, but then you have to reconsider your winemaking completely differently to keep the singularity of what Champagne territory can produce in 2022, for example, or not what mm, I, yeah. I want to produce. Yeah, this is what we created with Brut Nature, with Stark, with Philip Stark. Mm. It was not... We, and that's what he brought also on board when we worked on this project. He said, don't think about the final wine. We will see what it is. Just focus on each step. And the end will be, um, will be the result of all of that. And I think it's, mm -hmm. it's a very also important uh, way of looking at it. We are too much, too often. This is our... The way we have been trained is we want to achieve this result, so we do what is needs to be done to get the result. I think in the wine industry, it's worth letting things happen as well and follow. Uh, the winemaker must follow the trend and not not put his own footprint into the wine. But, you know, or personality. Listen, I, I, there's a, I, mean, I could talk to you all day. It's fascinating. We've only done half the questions we were going to talk about because we had so much to talk about. But I want to ask you, you know, you've got this very powerful job. You know, you're very well known around the world. You're also making wine in all these other Roderick-owned properties. Uh, do you have time for anything else? <laughs> I mean, do you, have time, do you have time for your family? I mean, you're a reader, obviously. You're a very intelligent man. How do you relax? Go walking, music? What do you do? I like music. I read. I read a lot, um, but I won't tell you what I'm. Well, oh, yeah, I can tell you what I read because people would. Go on, I'm, tell us. Tell us. I, I I love 
reading books on philosophy. You know, I love philosophy. Yeah. I don't know why, mm. but I've always loved philosophy and the classics, but also the new philosophers. And I think the question of what we are here to do and what we make and what's the future for mankind is something I really, really love. And I, I, I read a lot of these kinds of books. Um, my wife keeps telling me that it's... Uh, she, she cannot understand all the books on my on my uh, on my list, but this is the way I am, and I, I love it. No, I, I I spend lots of time with my family. I have two children, which I I, I try to to see as much as I can, and um, yeah, and but I used to say that wine is. I think wine is a very specific world. Uh, we have a. We, we cannot make wine just as a job. It's a life of wine. If you, it's, mm. it's a passion. It's, it's mm. definitely a passion. If you want to go to, always to find the best possible blend, the best possible uh, decision in the winemaking, it has to be your passion. You know, it has to be your day-to-day passion. So I think it's, it, it takes a big stack. But thanks, yeah. I have a great team everywhere in the world. <laughs> in each property, but here as well. I have a great team of passionate as well. So I'm not only the, I'm not on, the only man who questions himself. They all question themselves <laughs> as well. <laughs> oh, they, do. That's fantastic. they do a great job. That's, that's fantastic. Listen, Jean-Baptiste, your passion comes across as well as your artistry and everything you say. And, and we all love, make, love your wife. So it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'll see you very soon, I hope, either in Champagne or in London. Yeah, thank you, Tim. See you. Bye-bye. Jean-Baptiste is the kind of person I could listen to for hours. So knowledgeable about his native region. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Australian-born English wine guru, John Warrenchak. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>